0: I hope you know Scott we will be talking about the matrix next week period <laughs> so i mean get 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 ready i hope you're uh you'll if you got to get hbo at your house or come over here and watch it with us we will be discussing it sounds good yeah i look forward to it it's it's, it's interesting how uh, a movie a, well, a concept anyway that's over 20 years old has stuck you know stuck around the re- the relevance of it it, it has not uh, died away anyway we, we we have that to talk about now. i'm gonna
1: have to get a running start and look at the second and third one again yeah just to be fresh
0: they uh w- w- while we're talking about movies and then we'll uh get on with it i've been hearing a lot of people who are fans of the marvel universe describe this latest uh spider-man as like the best like better than in like they they are standing this film have, right. have you heard anything or are you interested in seeing it
1: i'll go see it sure i'll wait until the there isn't a Huge crowd. Or whenever I get HBO back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and because we do have no, that my timeline's blowing up with that too. We, we do have Omarion out here, you know. The, <laughs> <laughs> the Omarion
0: area. Yeah. Oh. I hope y'all are wearing y'all masks because this stuff is not playing at all. Anyway, welcome to Opus 130. Happy holidays, everyone. We do have a, a few holiday-ish things to get into, but um and uh, we're gonna honor here uh the late Bell Hooks in a second. Um, But before we did those things, Scott, you retweeted or or tagged me or or sent me a tweet. uh, Shout out to the composer VJ Iyer on Twitter since we recorded last asking one of those basic questions that we explore all the time on this show and, and that's sort of foundational to the show. Uh, defining classical music, excuse me, what is classical music? You know, what should we call it? So basically, mm-hmm. BJ Iyer's tweet was, if we had to replace the phrase classical music with something else, what would it be? What came to your mind when you read
1: that tweet? Why didn't I think of that? Just flat <laughs> out asking this myself <laughs> three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody suggested concert music. I thought that was sure. decent sure but again you know that isn't exactly that doesn't exactly cover everything does it i mean for me
0: it takes me back to a phrase that we use that i use all the time so-called classical music so with the, the point that we get into on this show is that classical music is broader than the orchestral aesthetic or the concert music aesthetic you know when we talk about that phrase we're talking about a lot more, but if we're strictly referring to the orchestral, the Western European aesthetic mm-hmm. of of orchestral music, concert music, uh, so called classical music is what I like to use to make that very point. This is what we're calling it, but classical music is so much more. But of course, you understand what I mean when I say it. So I feel like all of that is wrapped up in that phrase, so called classical music. I often, uh, you know, for folks who haven't connected the dots, I started using that phrase. Uh, inspired by Malcolm X, who used to say so-called Negroes, oh. you know, so that that's what we that's what you call us. And that's what, you know, we I, I, we know what uh, you know that we know what we mean, you know, when we use that phrase. But just acknowledging that this is something that has been put on us anyway. Mm-hmm. I, that's how I connected the dots to so-called classical music. So, in asking that question, that's what I like to say. But if it's not going to be so-called classical music, the suggestion I put out there was colonial music, and I know how'd that go. But I know that uh, John Sulpayaman, uh, shout out to him, um, you know, believes and and speaks to this a lot. But you know, people get mad, people get so upset, and just automatically turn to, oh, you're trying to turn, uh, tear down the genre and X, Y, and Z. And even if I never want to hear. Brahms again, which I don't. That's not what <laughs> that statement of colonial music really means if you want to stop getting emotional and think ab- about it a little more intellectually. When we talk about colonial music, we're talking about a music that has spread throughout the world, a style, a genre, um, an aesthetic that has spread throughout the, the world, and not necessarily by popularity, but because of outside forces like. Western European imperialism and, and the mm. erasure of indigenous culture. So as ugly as that might sound to a lot of people, I feel like that is a very accurate description of it. What do you think about <laughs> Uh, (laughs) imperialism (laughs) no no the phrase colonial i only hesitated to laugh because i was thinking about what the uh, new taglines of all the radio stations would have to be (laughs) your colonial music station anyway (laughs) Oof. (laughs) what do you think about that well uh that that uh that signifier colonial i've been
1: questioning things for a long while too but not for the reason that you do yeah mainly because i know that things are broken down by era Sure, and, right, right, and, and because classical was in an era of forty or fifty years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like Kleenex and aspirin and Coke. The one little specific name becomes synonymous for the entire Baroque, all the way up to modern orchestral music, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I don't even I don't even think saying okay, I'll, I'll go with calling it orchestral.
0: I mean, but so that's not you know, always the case, but the hair that folks like me will split is, well, there are all types of orchestras. Sure. Even most basically, you know, but, but be, uh, beyond just leaving the United States uh, and, and looking at other types of orchestras around the world, we have. The Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, sure. right. So you know, sure. even within that, we have something. So I, I think just even saying orchestral music isn't necessarily uh, and it's as certainly, encompassing. It
1: certainly doesn't cover chamber and recitals, right. So
0: exactly. Well, when it comes to having these conversations in classical spaces, a lot of people like to marginalize us and push us to the side and say that we're troublemaking and being the the bad guys and and X, y, and z, and uh, the the now late bell hooks. Spoke to this Mm -hmm. a bit, and uh, I actually have a uh, an excerpt from uh, an interview that comes from Freedom Forum that I wanted to share to get us into this. As a
2: a dissident intellectual, you know, there was a time when Black intellectuals got a lot of press, and you know, but now you hardly ever hear um, about Bell Hooks in the press. Um, You know, newspapers don't call me anymore to say, "Well, what do you think about?" Because I was seen as the bad the bad girl, the girl who says the things that people don't want to hear. And again, I have such a subculture of readers that I certainly can't complain, but I am ever cognizant of the fact that a lot of things like the New York Times, a lot of places never review bell hooks books. You know, last year I came out with a book on class, where we stand, class matters. Um, And luckily these books sell, but they don't get reviewed. And I, I think again, things that are not seen as topical, clever, Um, with, you know, witty in a shallow sense, we often don't hear. And I don't want to just talk about bell hooks.
0: There's, there's a lot to break down just in what she said right there. What's jumping out to me now that didn't jump out to me earlier when I was listening to this interview was a shallow type of topicalness or, or a shallow way of engaging. That's all over our field—that's mm. all over classical music. These sort of silly way. Think about every pledge drive ever. These very silly, witty, but not really witty ways to engage people. And I feel like that's what she's speaking to. Certainly, c- certainly, sure, yeah, certainly what I can apply to this. But you know, back Smug. to to the core of what she's saying in this clip: how uh, intellectual dissidents, as, as she said, you know, especially black ones, not getting of the platforms and the spotlights that they deserve. Were you overly familiar or very familiar with Bell Hooks before the news of her death?
1: Woefully unfamiliar. And to the point of being irritated when social media blows up that she passed away, Mm -hmm. I click on just a few of the remembrances where they quoted something that she wrote. And I'm thinking, where, why was this not included somewhere in my... In my education in my background something yeah um or not not maybe not my education but why didn't somebody tell me about this this mm-hmm. writer
0: yeah and i feel like in what she's saying is the answer to Probably that question yeah. the very answer to that question? Right. When we talk about um, when when she was talking about having her own followers, so it's not a matter of her being on the streets or going hungry, you know, her books sell and 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 those sort of things. You know, what do you think there is to be said about the difference between having a strong following and having? Your work and and your ideas spreading even more after death, like a lot of art does. Right you know, uh, as as we have to admit, you know that idea versus systemic change requiring some sort of mainstream something at least mainstream as defined by different fields. Is is that the name of the game at this point, considering? Uh, your um, inexperience, my inexperience with her writings and her words until after death. She had the following, but she she you wasn't mean, on. She didn't have a show on NPR,
1: and know? and she didn't get big name interviews like with Oprah. Or mm-hmm. is is that what you're saying? I mean, I didn't think about that, but you're
0: that's very true. That's 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 very true. So does so does systemic change? Does getting into the the veins of these systems that uh, these thoughts and these conversations can change require some sort of mainstream? proximity, it must.
1: At least for a little while, I think it's going to have to, right? Yeah. Until the change that she's talking about starts to happen, Mm -hmm. then she's going to need the acknowledgement of the people who have the pedestal. Right,
0: right. And I feel like there are just so many conversations that uh, as as we continue to do this podcast, as different folks have their podcasts, their shows, bring these conversations into their arts institutions. It's all about bringing this to the front. I still think the idea of decolonizing colonial music, so called classical music, as a sort of subculture sort of thing. Yes, there are a lot of orchestras that have posted the Black Squares. I'm going to talk about the Minnesota Orchestra later on in this opus. They have this um, poster in front of their building that, you know, it's a Black Lives Matter poster and it talks about how they haven't done nearly enough and there's so much more work to be done. So these these conversations and these ideas at the intersection of contemporary culture, race and all of those things and uh, Western classical music, they exist, but... They still must be some sort of relative subculture if we're still seeing mm-hmm. what we're seeing in the field, you know. Just as just as what she's speaking to. So, yeah, I feel that too. Yeah, rest in peace to the now late Bell Hooks. I, I, if if anyone has specific book suggestions, I mean, it's one thing to Google her name and just read what you can and go through the quotes, but I'm sure there are just some deep dives that Mm -hmm. can be found in her literature i'm sure that she's written or spoken about music specifically sure there's there's so much more to learn so here's to pushing these conversations to the front and hopefully trying to see change and and seeing impact before we're gone you Mm -hmm. know at least gone in body because she's never really gone at this point more famous now Again, like so many other artists right. more famous now than than before. But it's it's not about just staying in the margins and waiting until we die and, and more people spread and let's spread these conversations now. Let's be those dissidents. Let's not be afraid in whatever field, whatever walk of life we have to really push the table, shake the table, challenge thought and do something that's different toward that systemic change. Let's get started. Uh,
1: Scott Blankenship and And this
0: is Triloquy Opus 130 those hi-hat hits if, if I had more time and had thought about it, those should be like sleigh bells for, for this week. The ching, 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 you know? <laughs> anyway, hey, everybody. That's Welcome fun. to Opus 130 of the Triloquy podcast. To returning listeners, thank you for your continued support, for listening every week, for spreading the news about this show and the efforts we have toward decolonizing Western classical music, so-called classical music. Thank you so much for continuing to support this show. To new listeners, if you've never tuned into Triloquy before, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical classical music and deconstructs it in a way that affirms way more music as classic than is what is taught and reaffirmed by conservatories and orchestras and radio stations and everything in in between. You can learn more about the Triloquy podcast and listen to past opuses on our website, triloquy.org. You can also find out how you can contribute to the Triloquy podcast there. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information at shuttleworthfoundation.org. Support for the Trilogy podcast also comes from Springboard for the Arts. Springboard for the Arts mission... Is to support artists with the tools to make a living and a life, and to build just and equitable communities full of meaning, joy, and connection. More at springboardforthearts.org. I'd also this week like to thank KVNO and WDAV FMs for uh, sharing and airing uh, the sounds of Kwanzaa once again. That'll be available on PRX in the coming days. So for everyone, all the programmers out there looking for something to put on the radio, <laughs> Between the 26th of December and the 1st of January. It's a really cool show. Got some chamber music on there. Got some band music. The orchestral stuff. The Black Composers, of course. Um, So check it out. And huge thanks once again to KVNO and WDAV for your continued support of the work. Let's get it into Movement One. All right, Scott. So last week, you were uh, were talking about... uh, the emails that come in when we're talking about different um, styles of Western classical music being platformed, maybe Um, chamber arrangements of pop tunes and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. how there are always or surely to be the complaints about dumbing it down dumbing down the genre yeah we got into that last week you asked me about what my reaction to that sort of email would be well i've let it marinate (laughs) (laughs) because you know i like to get loud sometimes (laughs) (laughs) and basically what i just want to i want to give this a natural let me press my button here um If I just can condense everything that I said and if there's anything I want folks to understand about the concept of dumbing down classical music, that's what I believe is happening to the art form right now. When we're hearing the same Beethoven piano sonatas as incredible as the Waldstein is, I love it as well. But when we're listening to these uh, same piano sonatas, violin sonatas, concert uh, overtures, whatever, over and over again, we're missing out on the evolution of the art form. That's what dumbing down classical music is. Dumbing down classical music is not taking a Kanye track and putting it for piano and cello. You know, that's a part of the evolution. So, Long long story shorter. That's basically how I would respond to that, or how I think about even in real life a response to the concept to the allegation of dumbing down classical music programming. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that's a, a fair thing to say? That by by, do. by repeating, if you know, I'll, I'll take an extreme. If there's a radio station out there that where the t- the so called target sound is. Um, Telamon, or the you know <laughs> like the straight up Baroque. That's I just don't think the, any the of those B, are alive. B, 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 But I'm saying right. Uh, well, and there's something to be said there, right? But for the ones that did exist, or if this uh hypothetical place you know does exist still, that is dumbing down the art form because there's so much more. uh There's there's the Greek or maybe uh, Roman tale of the guy who was in the cave and shadows were like the depth. The, the, the depth of his understanding of the world and then leaving somebody listening will remind me leaving the cave and seeing so much more was an allegory for opening your mind and enlightenment, mm. something in the cave or y'all, y'all will let me know. Um, there's a piece of music about it even that I'm forgetting about. Anyway, that that's what I think about when I think about that phrase dumbing down, we're doing that by centering one type of classical music that existed in one part of the world in one basic era of time, you know, mm. when, when we're, you know, y'all, y'all get it. Anyway, that that's my response. Am, am I thinking more about dumbing it down?
1: I think it's just creating more and more subgenres, right? I mean, uh, people would get after me for playing Andrea Bocelli's, uh, Conti Partirò. Yeah. You know, because yep. that was that was too saccharine or whatever sure. for, for a serious classical station. And I sat there thinking, well, who said that this who said that this was serious?
0: <laughs> right. And why does it have to be scrunchy face all the time? And you know, like the violinists make. <laughs> once
1: uh once at Kate when I was working at KVNO. Pla-
0: Plato's Cave, by the way. Okay. Plato's Cave. Go ahead.
1: No, once when I was at KVNO and I played uh Scotland the Brave with Highland Pipes and you know a, a drum and bugle core behind them. Mm-hmm. And somebody wanted to know where to complain online. She was like, such <laughs> screeching, <laughs> such squalling. But well, over there, it, th- there's a lot of people that find it very pleasing. So, well, you know, you know whoever, who said that my show was supposed to be all Telemon?
0: And look, I'm not saying that I don't want to hear from people or I don't like feedback or if they have something to say or would have to something to say. Just know fine. that we, just know that I'm going to say something. Back. I was going to say. Just know that we will make fun of you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm going to make fun of the person. But and uh, look, we're we're spending more time here than I wanted. But <laughs> I've. You know, as, as folks have been throwing rocks at me lately, even on social media, I'm trying to do my best to respond, if not with humor or with not taking anything too seriously, even with love. There are so many people, especially this time of year, who just need to to feel some love, even if it's a little sarcastic, even just reading the love, the, the words. Hey, brother, I love you. Even you if know? it's
1: a bless your heart, I love you.
0: <laughs> so, you know. Shout out out to um, everyone who likes to send emails about uh, radio programming. We need some of y'all. I see. And that's the thing. I need folks to send the emails about the Brahms and the, and the continued, Mm. you know, a uh, dumbing down again of of the art form um but we we also need the folks receiving the emails to understand the purpose and the impact that could be have yin and yang it takes it takes you need you need darkness to have light you know you need sour to
1: have sweet and i would rather light a candle than curse your darkness <laughs> all right
0: well let's get into my first uh, accidental here i guess technically my second one i want to give a sharp <laughs> to Pavielle French I mean uh, a sharp and a round of applause so if y'all don't know who Pavielle French is she joined us here on Triloquy um, season 1 opus 38 and uh, was back this season for opus 117 local artist who has been bending the idea of classical music she sees classical music as Al Green and all these black legends you she has that's had black a classical and she has been uh, so influential she's even made her way into the local orchestras she's already uh composed and commissioned to work with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Well, with the Minnesota Orchestra um, this past week, she was a featured guest for their Holiday Pops programming. Mm-hmm. The Holiday Pops, you know, every year for folks who don't know, that's when the orchestra opens their doors and pulls out Sleigh Ride and Lieutenant Key J and Winter, Vivaldi's Winter and all of these tunes and tries to recontextualize them for an audience who wants to feel like they're doing something special during the the holidays. Well, they did this um with Paviel. She was joined by Kevin Kling. And I know that's a name that a lot of people wouldn't know. I was sort of familiar with the name, but basically and correct me if I'm wrong or help me clarify if I if I'm not describing them correctly. I'm thinking of just sort of a, a Garrison Keeler, NPR type of person who tells you know, the, the old stories about mom's casserole and the lake being frozen over
1: local, and, you know, local hero. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So the point of the Minnesota, uh, uh, the Minnesota Orchestra's Christmas Pops was contextualizing Christmas morning and the holiday season from two different perspectives. You had the and this is where the, the language gets problematic for me a little bit, because I could say. As a lot of people would want me to say, the traditional Christmas versus the Black Christmas, but you know, really, at the end of the day, it's the White Christmas versus the Black Christmas. It was the it was the holiday versus at the Minnesota Orchestra. Nice. Uh, <laughs> not to say that you know some of what Kevin Kling brought wasn't really incredible because it is fun to hear about what Minnesota, what a Minnesota winter was like in 1960, whatever, and you know uh, what their mom cooked on uh, on the Christmas morning and the the radio Christmas uh programming that they would listen to and all the you know all of that is great. You know, imagine a Christmas story, the movie a Christmas story, right. but just told through prose. I think it's also important to acknowledge though, as the Minnesota Orchestra did in this Pops programming, that folks like Paviel had a completely different perspective and a whole, you know, different stories to tell. But the centerpiece is that family, that listening to music, that singing along. So you know, she brought in a uh, Paviel, uh, some uh, some Shirelle that we're going to listen to here in a bit. Of course, the Donny Hathaway, you know, the the classic Black sure. Christmas tune is performed uh, this Christmas. This and, Christmas and, and and doing all that. So I just wanted to you know take a couple minutes to congratulate Paviel French here and to congratulate all the members of the minnesota orchestra for a program that got me out there because you know i don't go i don't go it has to be a reason for me to go see any orchestra and for me paviel was the reason we kind of spoke to this before we started recording you i don't want to put words in your mouth but i remember you saying it takes some sort of spectacle to get you in the seat to be quiet for an hour and a half to listen to an orchestra play, and
1: hopefully it's not something where they expect me to be quiet. <laughs> that's the point, right? Okay, but that's the point. No, I'm I'm not going to go and get into clothes that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. and sit in a place that's too hot <laughs> next to a date who I'm not probably not going to talk to after this <laughs> concert is okay. over. Okay, so now so now that's the problem. <laughs>
0: it's too much. You know, La Khalil from Opus ninety seven. He was talking about classical music orchestral uh performances need some sort of visual and we've all seen how successful the movie concerts are the video game concerts and this christmas pops you know there are there are skits and those things you know storytelling so that makes it more engaging you know uh i think that's where we basically need to go and i understand that there are a lot of purists that have no problem sitting down and listening to a 10-minute overture and a 30-minute concerto and a 45-minute symphony. And, and that's fine. And I, I affirm that if the concert programming is right, maybe I can consider doing that. But the fact of the matter is you're going to get more folks and more diverse audiences, not only racially, but age and mm-hmm. um experience level with Western classical music. That diversity is going to be so much richer if there is the visual component do you think that's are you talking about to that
1: are you are you tying this to the storytelling that paviel and kevin kling did is that
0: yeah the the, the idea that that's what made so much of the music and so much of the experience okay engaging. so what
1: what do i want then then let's let's bring out some interpretive dancers yep let's yep. have um let's have some projections
0: i've been to concerts um, where the music is playing and someone is painting something Wonderful. Live, you Love know, it. There's all sorts of stuff,
1: and that you then can do. auction that off at the end. Yeah, you know, have a, a silent auction or something yeah. at the end. That'd be great. Um, a light show, <laughs> <laughs> right? No,
0: that's that's so, a thing. That's something, like yeah. Now, I'm gonna flip the question around that you asked me last week to this. What is your response to the person that says that's dumbing down the live orchestral experience by doing those things? Okay. <laughs> If that's
1: what, if if that, then this this is not for you.
0: Right. And that's just that.
1: And I think that you can, you know, there's a little bit of psychology, you know, when I was in sales, there was a few instances where I pulled out that this product isn't, this isn't for you. This isn't. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. Like, you're right. When you act like you're starting to walk away, they go, hey. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, you know, and 60% of the time it works every time. yeah Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So you got to be careful when you when you haul it out is what I'm saying.
0: All of that to once again say congratulations to Pavio French. Shout out to all of the soloists and all of the musicians. I enjoyed myself. Next time there's some soul, something black at the orchestra, I suppose I'll be there again. We can have the conversation of at the end of the day, they're getting... Our money and our resources, you know, I'm, you know, a, a drink up there at intermission is twelve dollars. Damn, you know, so you know they're they're making some money, and it's there's going a fourth to fourth
1: reason I'm not going. And
0: so, so there's a lot to be said, but if we're talking about baby steps, mm-hmm. that is one baby step. I was there. And I enjoyed myself. <laughs> so, but congratulations. you had a reason. You yeah, had a reason. And I had to a reason. reason to be there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, when Kevin Kling is talking about the angels we have heard on high and the Carol of the Bells, all of those musical moments he remembers from his childhood Christmases. Paviel French spoke to, as I was saying, a lot of the soul tunes, and it was cool to hear the Minnesota Orchestra play, you know, 30 to 45 second snippets of all of this, you know, old black music. My favorite movement, though, was getting to hear for the very first time in my life, I never thought I would, an orchestral treatment of Shirelle's Saturday Love. So as a means of congratulating Paviel and the Minnesota Orchestra, we're going to transition out of this first accidental by listening to a little bit of It's Saturday Love by Shirelle.
3: You will be my Saturday love. You
0: said
1: you didn't know that one maybe that hook but i don't think i've heard it front to back mm. i remember Sorry. i
0: remember riding around uh, as a kid in the car i have one specific memory um and the song is on and my mom was like see you can she's she's helping you with your days of the week as well so i must have been like a little little kid but anyway fun fun to you know fun fun to hear that and the, again those moments are really only created by completely outside and completely different perspectives Pavio is not classically trained as a lot of people would say you know her work has nothing to do with uh, Tchaikovsky and Dvorak or William Grant Stoll or Florence Price either mm-hmm. you know it's it's her own unique perspective and that own completely different outside perspective is what got not only me but lots of folks there you know I'm not saying it was just packed out black like what I saw with fire shut up in my bones in New York but mm-hmm. I imagine it was some not only uh more colorful faces but younger faces and let me let me say this real quick this This podcast is called Triloquy. It's a lot of older folks in that concert hall. I hope everyone lives to be a thousand years old. But in my real mind, I understand that the vast majority of that audience is not going to be alive, not going to be there in 50, 60 years. So what legacy is being laid out? What forward thinking is being laid out in that regard? Mm. I know all of these financial people will do everything in their power to make sure that their endowments last for the next hundred years and i'm not even uh, exaggerating there I've, I've seen those plans right. so how is the conversation of audience development and community engagement happening when it comes to decades in the future because yeah. the way the concert hall looked to me last weekend there won't be a holiday pops a gen, uh, half a generation a generation in the future so these are things that have to be talked about not only for doing the quote-unquote right thing but for the survival of these institutions, at least for the survival of those sorts of concerts. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, let me get to one more quick accidental and, and then I'll pass it on to you. This is a an article. I'm going to give this um, a sharp again, two sharps this week. I really enjoy reading it. It's sort of a long heady sort of article. This was sent to me uh, by John Del Vento. Shout out to John. It's from the Boston Review. The uh, The title is Classical Music and the Color Line. Let me just read a little bit uh, of it here. Uh, at the beginning, it says, like U.S. history, classical music has become a new front in the culture wars as musicians and music institutions grapple with the legacies of racism, with most performing arts organizations shuttered by the pandemic last year. George Floyd's murder prompted several classical musicians of color to mobilize and speak candidly about their experiences of racism. Okay, so um, the first thing that I want to point out, you know, just as people get into this article and in that introduction, there are so many initiatives, so many individuals who were there before. George Floyd was murder. Folks who were having these conversations, I put us into that category of people, and it's not to say, oh, well, y'all are just catching on to the bandwagon and X, Y, and Z. That's not my point. I just think it's very interesting that, in tandem with the conversation of race and classical music, is George Floyd's name, and I I think mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. really interesting, and that's that's really telling. How do how do you how do you feel about the way so much of the industry uh did an about face because someone you know for the because someone died. I don't I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying it's a shame that someone had to die for so much of the industry to do an about face. What are your feelings on that as someone who was having these thoughts and these conversations and didn't need someone to die to do so.
1: I really wanted to say, told you. Sure. Um we we should have been doing this a long while ago and you know preferably with people of color, not you know a white guy along with a black guy i'm speaking when we started our podcast yeah 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 um and uh i'm, I'm sorry the second half of your question i mean yeah no just just
0: having that that conversation of there you know we, there are so many and not just us there are a lot of folks who've been here and i think it's of note that someone who as far as i know had nothing to do with so-called classical music how his name is, you know, in tandem sure. with everything or a lot anyway that's happening in our field, in our industry when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, you're seeing DEI work going on mm-hmm. all over. What I think the, the the test as to whether or not it's going to stick or whether or not it continues is uh, going to be realized very shortly as these programs start to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Are are they still going to throw money at a at a DEI initiative? Are they still going to bring in speakers? Is there still going to be opportunities for employers or people that use whatever ser- service that we're talking about uh, for uh, for employees mm-hmm. to get resources? Yeah, you see what I mean. Like the continuing
0: what I sort of see aspect. What I so, am beginning to see the beginnings of is you know we're beyond the conversation of orchestras need to play william grant still and florence price that is not where the conversation is we're now talking about living composers and even composers who challenge the aesthetics of colonial music that folks like william grant still and florence price perpetuated right and and see that's a deeper and longer conversation that we have time for today but yeah that, that that is how this discourse needs to evolve. So I think as the discourse gets more intense and uh, as there is a uh, a depth to it that continues to grow and to develop, I feel like that is a lot of the impetus behind people jumping ship or people going back to what they know or to the status quo because the depth of it is uncomfortable. We know why today is is common in in the field of classical music. Why? certain composers weren't being played. um, I think the harder part of the conversation is why certain composers are continue, are continue to not be played. Sure. You know, how, how we're in, we're, that's not only a a figment of the past, it's a, it's a a part of the present, a part of our ecosystem.
1: Yeah. And uh, my pick for the second movement is going to hit on a number of those things that you brought up, the um, going beyond William Grant still, and also uh, when you listen to this piece of music, if you didn't know what name was attached to it, tell me why it fell out of favor. You do work You do
0: work in radio because you're forward promotion. You yes. <laughs> let, and, let me, let, oh, go ahead, and go ahead.
1: No, what I was going to say is um, in every meeting that we have now where you can ask an anonymous question, I'm going to out myself here, but... Every meeting I ask the same question. What are you doing to reach out to communities of color? Mm-hmm. Because I want to see if the answer changes. Yeah. You know, I want to see if there's an evolution mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so far, to me, the response has largely been, well, if you look at the numbers here, our percentages of blah, 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 blah. So it, they dance around it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, right. Okay, I, I know what the answer, I know what the numbers are. But what are you doing to expand that? What are you doing to reach out to the community?
0: Mm-mm. I was going to make a problematic joke, but I won't. Well, Why say that and then not? All I was going to say was... You know, the least dancing people know how to dance around a conversation, dance around an answer to <laughs> you and lion. You can you can you can do a good uh, electric slide, though. I can. Uh, anyway, let, let me let me touch on a couple more things uh, from this Boston Review article. So a, a large part of the piece is speaking to a couple of authors of new books that really dig into some of these um, issues. The last name of one of them is Horowitz. So I'm reading here. It says Horowitz offers a rather different account of black classical music. In his role as an artistic administrator and concert producer, he has consistently argued and proven that blending music with appropriate multimedia and research-driven conversation from the stage can generate meaningful relationships between performing ensembles and the communities they serve. We just got done talking about that with the Minnesota uh, uh, Orchestra Christmas Pops. So they said uh, in this article, it says appropriate multimedia and research-driven conversation. Do you think folks would tire or, or, or what do you see um, as the appropriateness of not just the dancing and the art and stuff, but conversation? What if uh, if uh, concert programs were put together, at least live programs Um where instead of an hour and a half's worth of music it's 50 minutes worth of music but before each piece is 10 to 15 minutes of talking or contextualizing and maybe if not that if that's too much a little bit shorter do you think the radio break as it were could potentially have a place in the concert hall as a means of keeping folks
1: engaged interesting um I don't know. Maybe if it's clever, like what Pavel and Kevin Kling did. Yeah. Maybe if it's along with video, because we know that video keeps people's eyes focused in one spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good suggestions, I don't know.
0: And then even the, it's not, it doesn't have to always be about the challenging conversations. You know, it could be about, oh, you know, this is just a funny story about such and such You did such and such. And as you continue to focus specifically on living composers, you have a better chance of actually having those people talking about their pieces or those people telling a story that has nothing to do with a piece of music or whatever. I mean, think about how many folks uh, still to this day crowd bookstores when David Sedaris, or or somebody is going to be there to sign the book or tell a story or contextualize. We have the same opportunity with music, but that's going to require some different programming. Shakespeare isn't here to talk about Macbeth. You know, but you mean you know, like a meet the composer talk or something right, like that, right? Things cool. like that. You know, I mean, in the same way that Bell Hooks is mm. in here to talk about her writing and and the works that she's done. So you know, these folks have to be celebrated now, and there's a depth of engagement and experience that could really be tapped into if we would we would do that. Last thing I want to uh, point to here is something that I thought was very interesting. Of course, when we talk about. Um, the Black Foundations of American Classical Music, the name Antonin Dvorak comes up. We've told that story a lot, so I'm just going to uh, read here. It says, one of Dvorak's most zealous disciples, Boston composer Henry Elf Gilbert, also took direct inspiration the result was an orchestral work called dance and place congo conductor carl muck whom Horowitz praises for championing the archetypal american exuberance and yankee salt of fellow um, american composers rejected gilbert's work precisely because of its black source material so The point i want to make here and the the reason why i wanted to highlight that is because yes we're talking about living composers we're talking about black composers who have been overlooked but because of racism and because of these systems that keep the black perspective outside of the genre there are even white composers white male composers who have been left out and this isn't about me trying to paint um henry f gilbert as this incredible man because you know by the time we get done reading about composers we've we learned all kind of stuff that they were doing that was uh nonsensical and racist and x y and z but i think the the point is is that it's a composer i didn't know i don't know if you've heard of american composer henry l F. Gilbert, sorry, and, and his piece of music called Dance and Place Congo. You know, so th- there's, you know, as I, I'm assuming, as in the country of Congo or wh- whatever. Mm. Anyway, maybe that's even problematic. But the point is, <laughs> <laughs> the point is that the blackness its not just the black people who were who were being systemically kept out it was the black story it was the black narrative and somehow folks like gershwin you know were able to to squeeze stuff in you know and then Mm -hmm. of course the the folks from europe who use black music but I think that's that's very interesting. We can learn more about ourselves and and all of who we are including the white male composers if we would just be honest and look at the racism that has always been present. You we're we're you know we're talking about how the conversation continues to evolve. I wonder how much how acceptable it is considering all the work that's been done to just name very plainly classical music as racist you know even here as it as it exists in the united states what i just read says that to me mm-hmm. that even if you are a white male composer they don't want to hear that negro music or they don't you know probably a worse word than that that i won't say today. Right, but anyway anyway right, right, right. where, where, where do you where do you think we are um as far as you know again the the evolution of these conversations when it comes to just accepting The rejection of blackness and black perspectives, not just
1: black people, accepting it, yeah, or fixing it,
0: or accepting the fact that it's not the again, it's not black people exclusively that were kept out, but the black perspective, even as brought in by white folks. Sure, you know, as as I just read here.
1: Yeah, actually, um, if if you're done, this is a great transition into my accidental. Was that the last thing that you wanted to co- cover on that article? Well, well
0: on this show, we transition out of the accidental, each accidental with a piece of music. So I <laughs> wanted to do that. But. <laughs>
1: All right. Um, but. I think you I, I think you there's a couple of things that are just going to dovetail in so nicely with what I had to say well but, then
0: um, well, well, well before you do that let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of this piece of music by uh, by Gilbert that you know didn't get a place on stages back then but we'll hear a bit of it now I because I messed up your whole flow No you're fine you're <laughs> da- you're fine dance and place Congo by Mr. Gilbert let's take a listen to a little bit of it here. That's a rec- by uh, the LA Phil the Los Angeles Philharmonic it was uploaded uh, last April so I was I, just
1: about I, to ask if you ever aired it
0: you know I, I had never heard of the piece so you know again maybe there's something wrong with this uh, you know I, I'll, I'll have to do my research I'll have this article from the Boston Review in the uh, description so please go back because it's it's a lengthy um, article um, that has a lot of depth to it you know we don't have the time to completely break it down here the time or the intelligence on my part Maybe, but especially after dinner and a few drinks. But anyway, you know, you were talking about it, it, it dovetailed into some of the points you were making. I just want to make sure that folks understand that it's not just black people, it's not just wanting to physically, um, visually keep the spaces white. The tradition has been intellectually and as far as narratives and perspectives keeping it white a white composer couldn't even bring this piece of music into a concert hall because it was connected to some blackness that's an important aspect of classical music history even here in, in the United States to really understand and accept it's not just the people it's the aesthetic and to a degree we still have that right. the black aesthetic of music is not considered classical that's why you know and we can get into the history of the word jazz and, and all of that sort of stuff but we we, we have to be willing to think on on these lines if, if we're going to evolve and continue to change the conversation we have to allow the aesthetics yes we, we're we doing a great job of getting black folks on stage to sing um the magic flute to play uh brahms's concertos and do all of these things we need to get the black aesthetic into the spaces as well anyway mm. th- that, uh, those are my accidental so you have one that kind of ties in first of all what what accidental i want to
1: give this a sharp um, it's an interview from BuzzFeed News that was done with Amanda Shire's husband, uh, Jason Isbell. And For folks who,
0: no, folks who don't know, who is uh, Jason Isbell?
1: Jason Isbell is um, a young man from Alabama who used to be with a, another bigger group called the Drive-By Truckers. He went solo, got sober, and got incredibly famous. Um I've highlighted his name a couple of times, especially in association with Adia Victoria mm-hmm. because um, he did a, a residency at the Ryman Theater in Nashville recently and it was eight nights. Seven of the eight nights were opened up by black women. Mickey Guyton was the yeah. the the big name. If you yeah. can go and listen to her sing Gimme Shelter by the uh, the uh, Rolling Stones after Charlie Watts died, it's an amazing... And, Jason playing guitar,
0: black women singing country.
1: Right um, now, I I started realizing Jason was sort of the reluctant activist. Right around the time the COVID restrictions started to happen, and he was among the first uh, artists that I saw say, "You're not coming in here unless you have a yeah. mask." a vaccine or a negative test
0: and if you don't want to do that you can just fuck off
1: right basically what he said right and he uh he was getting people writing in saying you know i love your music can we not make it about this can you keep your politics out of it Uh, so he's lost Mm, he's mm, mm. he's lost some but i also became aware of his activism elsewhere because of uh well social media for one but he also started to realize that it was largely these black women who were trying to highlight all of the issues of racism and sexism in the country and alt country. So, so, so
0: not only do these black women have to operate as marginalized because they're black women in country music, they have the extra weight of bringing on the changes that mm-hmm. needs to happen. And and it sounds like Jason Isbell saw that and wanted to do something about
1: it. Right. And um, one, of the, one of his tweets that really stayed with me, he was talking about how a lot of white folks do not want to look at their privilege and they don't want to look at some of the advantages that they've had because uh in their experience everything is great you know and they have had to struggle for something uh on their own scale that's
0: what i was gonna say it seems like the response is always well i worked as hard as anybody else and my mama didn't have nothing in x y and z right you
1: know right in in their perspective right. of it and in in saying it that way it completely negates anybody else's experience any Mm -hmm. person of color's experience Mm -hmm. and um you know he's he's spoken out about cancel culture and things like that but what i really loved about this particular interview was him talking about how uh these white southern rural men need to see things how things really are did, so did
0: you mention of uh, this is buzzfeed
1: news buzzfeed yep. news right um and he says it's not about him at all he's really trying to get people from his background you know rural alabama to think about the way that things really are and their own and the way that they were brought up and it ties into a bell hooks quote that i found again i was so irritated that i did not find her earlier right but this feeds into this article and some of the things that jason is trying to fight against. Sure. Bell writes, the first act of violence that a patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. Mm. I feel awkwardly seen and spotlighted yeah. by that. Yeah, You know? Yeah and he's speaking to that in that you know you can you can be emotional you can have emotions and share them and not be uh, uh, uh thought of as as unmasculine or yeah. as a, as as a let's say it a wussy mm-hmm. okay yeah i want pu- a pusillanimous
0: as, <sighs> uh, as some people and that's really a word that's not <laughs> so go look it up you know <laughs> mm. anyway um I wonder if you can, you know, going, going back and connecting more of the dots between what Jason Isabel is uh, speaking to in, uh, in this piece and the Bell Hooks quote that you just read. Do you feel like there is uh, a direct connection between this urge to be unemotionally um, ma- macho, masculine and recognition of privilege? It does. Does it does it trigger? A specific emotion to recognize privilege. Do, are are you do you experience or or do you think about a connection between those two things? Hyper masculinity, the patriarchal impacts to men, and a man's a white man's inability to see his privilege.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely an A plus B equals C equation. Um, yes, yeah, speak More to it. I mean, I, I found that interesting right now. Well, um, it's the diet that. Uh, a lot of small town, rural town, uh, or rural families come up on. Mm-hmm. I saw my father talk about it. I never saw my father cry. Uh, my mom died and when his dad died. Mm-hmm. I saw him cry, and that was the only two things. And now all of a sudden, he's 85, and we're having conversations where at the end of it, I say, Dad, if you would just say these things, you wouldn't be so torn up, yeah. You wouldn't be fight. You wouldn't be so anguished, mm-hmm. you know. You, it's it's fighting. You you've got this cognitive dissonance happening, and I was made to feel like less because I had those. Um, Emotions, you know, mm-hmm. to, to cry, to be depressed, to, be, to have empathy or sympathy for something rather than make, make fun of it or right. or think it serves you right or mm-hmm. have that sort of myopic view on something.
0: And of course, not to diminish at all the impact that the patriarchy has on women. I think the, the connector is if a man can't even be in touch with his own emotions, how can he emotionally connect with another human being? And how does that manifest when it comes to mistreatment, mm-hmm dynamics, all Mm -hmm. of
1: those things. So some I've had conversations with uh, a friend where she asked me, I don't understand why it is that you, when I listen to Jason Isbell, it's it's beautiful music, but it's very melancholy, it's very sad. Mm -hmm. And I said, but you see, the thing is, is that he's able to crystallize a moment. He's able to take something that that rural white man will understand. And maybe that's the catalyst to go, oh shit. Okay. So Other people feel this too, and this is okay. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it's an important uh, catalyst.
0: And then you know, to we don't have to always do it, but to tie it back again to this theme of so-called classical music and expanding that uh, that definition. You know, the the aesthetic definitions of that phrase, country music. I mean, that's American classical, and I'm I'm not versed at all in the you know. who listen to this show know i don't know country music at all Mm -hmm. but when i think about um what is foundationally american i can go back and talk about race records and the uh the black origins of country music all of those things you know but it's all foundational and i have to consider that american classical in the same way that i affirm things like jazz as Mm -hmm. american classical and i feel like jason isbell understands that to a degree, at least when it comes to race and the black foundations, and it must fuel a lot of his decisions and a lot of his social politics. I I did want to read one thing from the actual article just to uh, give folks a little bit of a, a teaser what they're talking about here. It says, Isabel's decision to feature seven black women is notable in any year, but in this particular moment, it feels like a necessary course correction. Earlier this year, the country music industry was rocked by scandal after ring camera footage leaked of rising star Morgan Wallen drunkenly shouting the N-word. I don't know Morgan Wallen.
1: Right. Yeah, he was a darling. for He was all over the radio for a little bit. That piece of video got out, he was uh, given the Dixie Chicks treatment pretty readily, and evidently he's resurfacing.
0: I mean, but don't approximate him to the Dixie Chicks, because the Dixie Chicks wasn't around here talking about the N-word. No, it's you know? it's the
1: situation where he was gotten rid of very quickly, but he started to resurface very quickly. Well,
0: you know, they can always you know say things like, oh, drunkenly this, or this, that, and the other, but you yeah. know, they, they say in vino veritas, right? Mm-hmm. That the truth comes out when you get to drinking, right. so... You know, um, why I was did, why, I was on tranquilizers. Why, why did I mention that? Oh yeah, because of the um, the idea of course correction Mm -hmm. i think you know uh, when we're breaking down you know we all know the the letters dei now you know diversity equity inclusion well when we're talking about equity i feel like course correction is a part of it oh why does race matter or why this and that and the other because there are things that have to be fixed Mm -hmm. there are there are systems that have created our current situations uh particular situations that Fortify those structures, so to break that stuff down and to and to look back and and fix that, you can't undo it. But to fix the impact, you know, there has to be more done. So sure. I, I applaud um, Isabel. I understand how it can look to a lot of people like performative action, and I'm not going to you know argue that with anybody because you know all of our experiences are different and manifest in uh, different opinions on on certain things. But from where I sit. Jason Isbell is is really digging into some important work, and as much as that work needs to be done in so-called classical music, I d- I think it certainly needs to be done in the classical art form of mm-hmm. country music, at least as we call it here. In the well, United yeah, States. he's
1: you know he's really speaking against the the nostalgia that the genre creates, yeah, and people not wanting to abandon that nostalgia, where he's trying to say. You know, it's okay to let go of some of these things and change. Yeah. it's okay to let some of these things die.
0: Yeah, yeah. Before we leave this and um, and get into some of Jason Isbell's music to transition into the second movement, I just I feel like I'll be remiss if I didn't just bring back up. At the inauguration uh, earlier this year, when Joe Biden uh, got into office, you know, Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. And then the Republican senator, I think from Nevada, came up afterwards and, like, oh, Garth Brooks, that was beautiful, but when Barack Obama said it. <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember? I was sitting in front of the TV and, yeah. and I was like, oh, basically, who's like Garth Brooks? I'm going to let you finish. I'll <laughs> let you finish, But <laughs> Anyway, shout out to uh, Jason Isbell. Shout out to all the country music fans and especially shout out to the folks in country music who are supporting folks like uh, uh, Adia Victoria and all of these other incredible Black women artists who are pushing forward in a genre that has proven over and over again to push back, Mm -hmm. but they're pushing back even harder. And thanks to folks like Jason Isbell, we can continue to have this conversation and expose more folks to what is going on in that genre. What piece of music you want to... outro us with as we get into the second movement
1: the piece that's mentioned in this article maybe it's time which is a piece that he wrote for the soundtrack for star is born this is not bradley cooper this is actually jason isbell singing the song that he wrote in this demo of maybe it's time
4: maybe it's time to let the old ways die maybe it's time to let the old ways die takes a lot to change a man hell it takes a lot to try. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Nobody knows
3: what waits for the dead. Nobody knows what waits for the dead
0: you know the 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 part of the those lyrics that really get me going is. He said it's hard to change a man. Hell, it's hard to even try. Damn. Yep. Y'all you yep. <laughs> y- y'all are a lot. You says head men are a lot. Jason Isbell even said so. Yep. <laughs> it's true. Well, we're here the second movement where we're taking this uh second ending, uh, where we take a piece of music we've been repeating all week and instead of repeating it fully, we take the second ending and talk a little bit about why we have been repeating it. You know, a lot to to change a man. I guess I have um five men to talk about. (laughs) So, you know, we're in the holiday season again, shout out to everyone who's traveling, listening to this, whatever you may be, you know, I hope y'all are having a, a happy and warm and safe holiday season. I love returning to a lot of the soul Christmas music. A lot of the soul holiday music. Um, I often affirm when, when someone just asks me just right off, what's your favorite Christmas tune or your favorite Christmas recording? I love the Jackson five, um, Uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town I just love the groove of it so of course I've been revisiting that but listening through the whole album and I found myself repeating a different one this year I, I still love the Santa Claus is Coming to Town but Give Love on Christmas Day has been getting a bit of my attention
3: People making lists Buying special
0: Oh my gosh, so good, so very good. You know, not only just the general vibe of the tune. I think I'm really attracted to the spirit of the lyrics. It's the time of year when you're at least pretending to appreciate your friends more. You know, <laughs> and you know, having the dinners and the cocktail parties. And well, what are they saying there? You want to give your friends something more than just something you bought at the mall. So that gets store. into the title. You know, give love on Christmas Day. I'm not great at giving gifts that are just sort of performative if i know i want to get this person this thing i'm always excited to do that and i always do um but instead of just buying folks the the keychain or the snow globe or whatever just to make a motion of buying a gift i prefer to Host a dinner party or or buy lunch at the restaurant or, or, or just do something like that. Just offer a, an experience, you know, to give love <laughs> on Christmas. So, you know, as I've been thinking about that with so many of uh, my friends that, you know, I've gotten to hang out with and really appreciate during this holiday season, that tune has been one that... Um, you know, has has struck a chord with me that I've been uh, repeating.
1: You said that you like the feeling of the stores being closed and the there's coziness some, of right. Christmas so morning. Does this track feed into that? Oh, definitely.
0: I mean, I will be playing this on Christmas morning. I'm gonna have my uh, sherbert mimosa. I'm gonna be doing my little two step swerve. Hopefully, <laughs> Santa Claus brought the espresso machine this year. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully, that's one of the boxes under the uh, the yeah. tree. So, yeah. That, that that's that's you know what I think about, it. and I know that you talk about you know the Christmas spirit not really being something that you jump into, and and beyond the commercialism, it's- the the commercialism. I don't know if I'm saying that word right of of it all. Uh, I like thinking about this side of it. Why not? You know, we we spend all of our years so stressed out and in the the depths of whatever we're doing with our lives. Why not take 10, 15 days, three weeks to really focus in on gratitude and love and friendship and those things? That's what inspires my so-called Christmas period. Well, you
1: know, I don't observe the holiday. Yeah. But
0: I mean, I
1: don't observe it Christianly. That doesn't mean that I don't buy gifts, but I buy them for the people that I want to buy them for. So that relieves a whole bunch of stress. Yeah. And this year I kind of killed it. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Um, especially by, like my friends down in Omaha, uh, Mary Beth and her husband, Don, I got her husband, Don, a remote controlled helicopter mm-hmm. and I got her a Nerf gun to shoot it with. <laughs> so <laughs> very good. Very good. A couple's gift. <laughs> yeah. So they might not be married for long.
0: <laughs> oh, shit you you telling all their little business okay well <laughs> um i was thinking about you a little bit when i was listening to that tune and i managed to find a classical guitar cover of it so huh. if the if the if the soul aesthetic if the black aesthetic of the jackson five doesn't quite work for your playlists or your programming i'll link this solo guitar version that that may i think this is a really beautiful version of it as well we'll hear a little bit of this There's kind of a cozy Christmas feel to that mm. version of it. You know, maybe mm. even more so to an extent. Anyway, shout out to the Jackson 5.
1: And who's the guitarist there? This Does is it say?
0: Lex Von Sumayo. Shout out to Lex for some incredible guitar playing in the so-called Western classical style. And shout out to everyone this holiday season. Glad to have y'all here as audience members. In the
1: colonial style.
0: What music you got to uh, for us? This, what colonial music you got for us? <laughs> well, going back to your idea,
1: going back to your idea of uh going beyond William Grant Still, you mm-hmm. know, the, the the pieces that we know um I started to really dig into Florence Price's non-symphonic stuff, like yep. the chamber works. Mhm. And looking through the stories behind some of the pieces that don't get aired very much, that don't get, probably haven't been given a concert yet. Right. Or at least not widely. Sure. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found some startling things. And one of the things that I found was that when, uh, so Florence Price's mother was white, her mm-hmm. father was black. Mm-hmm. And I found out that when she was 14 years old and moving, uh up to the northeast to go to new england conservatory her mother told her you should try to pass yourself off as mexican right right and i hadn't read that yet or if i had i forgot it and and uh that that really impacted me in the moment for some reason as i'm looking back over the year and i'm cataloging and and categorizing memories and and things that i've learned and mm-hmm. such you know And so I was listening to her piano quintet, and if I didn't know better who composed it, uh, that's that's a Dvorak. Piece that I haven't heard, sure. you know. So, you, so I'm not saying that it was the influence of Dvořák, but it was an era, right? There was a, a, a sound, right? Because, Early
0: American classical,
1: right. whatever, Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. because um, because there was the the Western classical element, and then she'll come in with a dance or a piece of folk music or something mm-hmm. like that that is her voice, right? And um, she does that in the in the quintet too, but it is so pleasing and so. Um, uh, you you the, the half hour goes by before you realize it, you know, it's that easy to listen to. And so when you listen to it, you think, well, why would this fall out of favor? Why wouldn't people want to play this? And this part that you're playing right here stuck out to me because in this moment, I heard, I'm getting choked up. I heard Florence, I heard her voice and I understood what she was saying and I didn't have the words for it either.
0: Members of the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas there, you're trying to get me choked up, you know, thinking about a lot of different things in response to this performance and this piece of music. First of all, this performance, I'll I'll have the YouTube video linked in the description, is happening at an art museum in Northwest Arkansas called Crystal Bridges. And, you know, this is a, a museum that has been heavily funded by the Walmart people that's not what we're here to talk about the only i'm only bringing that up um you know as a means of saying i have played music festivals uh in this part of the country and i can see the impact that florence price has had on the history the music history of her home state so many people get to her music and to her legacy because they're looking at uh, looking for the hometown composers, the the Ark, sure. this Arkansas State composers. So when you you know start there and then get into the depth of what you're speaking to, not only her identity and the challenges, but the fact that she had to pretend. I'm I'm really trying to get choked up for real. Like she had to pretend to be something else, right. and that thing that she had to marginalize and put to the side is one of the main things that we celebrate her for and, right. and remember right. her for, um, you know, I have to mention, uh, John Jetter and the folks at the, Oh shoot. Fort Smith. The, yeah. Thank you. The Fort Smith symphony of Arkansas. Yeah. It's their recordings of this black music that served as the foundation for a lot of my discovery right. for a lot of this music. As we were talking about earlier with, uh, the composer, uh, last name Gilbert and, uh, the piece of music inspired by, uh, dancing the place Congo or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you know, if if we only considered reimagining and recontextualizing classical music for the sake of American history, American aesthetics, American conversations, we would still find this stuff. It's just the fact that the identities and the struggles of these people played into why we don't know them. Mm -hmm. So yes, we can take that, that safer, less uncomfortable route of looking at the history of geography in America and getting to these folks. But if we allow ourselves, if we're brave enough to look at the whole story, there's a depth Of the music that we can just unlock and and engage with even more it'd be one thing you know and again we're talking about different multimedia's and dialogues and concert spaces this is a beautiful piece of music on its own obviously how much more if an audience at a chamber music concert got to hear you offer your perspective Mm -hmm. and how it impacted you that would really add to it and i think that's what we need to begin to consider exploring more just really how to intentionally engage audiences and to some people it's going to feel like dumbing down and those people can you know go to hell i don't care it's 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 about just unearthing and helping more people experience what you're experiencing um with with you know proximity to this music
1: yeah for some reason you know i've i've heard the symphonies and and the concertos and things i've aired them and that one cut through like a in a way that I just can't explain yeah and like I said in a moment I I understood what she was telling me mm-hmm. and I didn't have any other words than the notes that she was using either but I got it you know yeah. I just it, it just clicked with me in that moment yeah um and it's a piano quintet and <laughs> the pianist left the stage yeah so I, I don't know if that's the whole final movement or what but um
0: Well, we'll be be sure to link that. Y'all go listen to that again. got hot in here, didn't it? Shout out to members of the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas for that beautiful performance of Florence Price's Quintet in a... Minor, wow, wow, incredible stuff. Well, uh, we're getting into the third movement, Scott. Uh, speaking of black music and, and American classical, uh, we're talking about a little hip hop in the third movement this week. I had the pleasure of uh, featuring Tommy and Steve O from the Speaker Geekers podcast. We were yeah, on the cool. Speaker Geekers podcast yeah. earlier this year. I'll, I'll I'll have that episode. Was that linked. this year? I feel like it was this year. If it wasn't, it, it was last year. So <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 have it linked. So um, I invited them on. Um, We talk about um, so-called classical moments in hip hop, you know, in the same way that we can point to um, Juba dance and classical music or waltz or, you know, these different things. Um, Flipping that around and seeing if these folks who are so embedded in hip hop can speak to some classical moments in it. So we uh, we talk a little bit about that. Uh, We kind of talk about where the genre is moving culturally, again, as this um, American classic music and uh, that, that tells so many more more stories like Florence Prices, just in a different aesthetic, you know, so where the genre is going culturally. Is it all about the money? Are we holding on to some of the history and some of the impact of why the genre is there? We get into that, but we start our conversation talking about hip hop Christmas music. So in the same way that there's holiday music um, on the Western classical side uh, some beautiful country Christmas tunes, Mm -hmm. of course, all the pop country, there's some uh, uh, pop, uh, sorry, pop Christmas, I'm mixing up my words, Uh, there's hip-hop Christmas. So we sort of talk about that. Is that really culturally hip-hop, you know? Is it still the grimy, you know, super masculine thing to hear folks rapping about Santa Claus and all this sort of stuff? So that's where we get the conversation started. So to get us there, I wanted to offer a little bit of an example. So uh, released by Death Row Records about 10 years ago, Uh, they did a flip on a tune called Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Unlike some of these people in their Priuses, they don't even want to drive down that street, but Santa Claus isn't afraid, so. (laughs) So anyway, we're gonna listen to a little bit of this tune. uh, We're gonna uh, hear the, uh, of course, number that features the one and only Snoop Dogg to get into my conversation with Tommy and Steve-O from the Speaker Geekers podcast. Hope y'all enjoy this.
5: Santa Claus on the ceiling, Jack Frost chilling. Pinch the Grinch for being a holiday villain. Season's greetings, all the proceeds are brought to you by the church house where we'll be eating. Chestnuts roasting on the open fire, singing my jingle, where Chris Kris Kringle. I didn't cop nine, even shout. I even stayed
4: in the house when the homies tried to sneak me out. Now all I want for Christmas is my six-fold Chevrolet and a granddaughter for her grandmother.
5: Hip-hop is ain't just not music. Nah, of course, we all understand that and know that it's a... It's a way of life. It's a way, it's a style, you know what I'm saying, um, and everything like that. So the style of music that comes from Christmas rap or Christmas hip hop, um, it has to be included because there's country Christmas music, there's R&B Christmas music, I'm assuming there's classical Christmas music, mm-hmm. you know, um, and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it has to be um, included in that in that sub-genre. So, to speak.
0: What do you think, Steve? hip hop isn't selling out by going the Christmas route?
4: No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I think, <clears throat> honestly, I think it's just a a play on Christmas music, but it's it's hip hop all in the same. And I mean, we got Christmas too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> whatever holidays that we have. And for us, it's a, or um, whatever holidays, you know, you decide to celebrate, whether it's Kwanzaa, Christmas, or whatever you know, it may be. All of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's just a play because a lot of us have just you know, to delve in just a little bit deeper, a lot of us had have, have had some traumatizing Christmases. Right. So yeah. for for you know a, a lot of hip hop music is those traumas or you know, um things that we've seen growing up. So putting that taking that traditional well, not the traditional well, yeah, in some instance the traditional Christian music and Giving it a a upgrade of facelift with hip hop, yeah, it's definitely still hip hop, just a play on Christian music, and how we have a. Uh experience Christmas throughout the years, you know. Yeah, or, and, you know, and you're I'm hitting
0: doing. on you're hitting on something important because when you talk about those traumas uh, collected through our Christmas experiences as as Black folks, of course that comes through the music. So so much of this hip hop Christmas music isn't warm and cozy and by the fire. It's yo badass ain't getting nothing for Christmas and all those <laughs> sorts of things. Are there some negative toxic things being reinforced through the community if we approach? Christmas music like that as a hip-hop culture?
5: Um, I don't think it's reinforced. You know, a lot of times I look at um, people not getting things for Christmas or, you know, uh, what's the song, Santa Claus Skipped Over the Ghetto or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, It's just a sense of circumstance, you know. Hey, like, it's it's been Christmases where I didn't get anything, you know, because my mom couldn't afford it. Yeah. And so is a sense of oh okay, we're here we're we're together we're we you know we eating, so you know you got a sense of uh appreciation of that um I don't know if that answered the question. I just went off somewhere. And no, no, <laughs> definitely. I
0: just, and steve maybe you can respond to this. I I just sort of think about uh, the ways in which, uh, you know, my mom's generation may talk about, oh, the Jackson 5 Christmas album is the ultimate, you know, but mm-hmm. the spirit of that sort of black music and the spirit of some of this more contemporary black Christmas music, specifically in hip hop, it's just not the same. And, and I don't know, Tommy said, it's not reinforcing any negative things, but there has to be something there to that
4: yeah uh, so i did some research and and when i was looking it up the i think it more has more to do with the connection of the holiday and the music Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know when we look at that we're always when we're looking forward to this one time of the year it's you know mostly based off of last year the memory from last year, like yeah. All right, what we got, what happened, who ate, you know, who wasn't supposed to eat the pie before the pie was ready, who's coming to cook. And then you get these great songs like the Jackson, Jackson Five, you know, Jackson right. Five or whoever, and it sticks. Yeah. And we talk whenever, about
2: this too. yeah, we talk about this <laughs> on the Speak
4: People podcast. Uh, and it sticks. And what happens is, it's just like, yo, we have to play that record because this is how christmas feels in the house when we hear this record this is certain people's record we got to play this record so when the new ones come out it's just kind of like yo that's dope but on shirley gotta hear
3: you know (laughs) the jackson
4: five or
3: (laughs) you know all the temptations or
4: or whatever and they would be like yeah that's cool but you know y'all go play that in y'all room we playing (laughs) this out here in the main room you know so um i just think it's one of them things that that uh it's just the memories that's attached and it's had so long to build and stick that is like how do you you know how do you break that that chain to be like all right this the new christmas music that we want to play yeah um which still we still do is just ends up we end up separating at a point and we're like all right you know all our age is in the back like yeah (laughs) put this Mm -hmm. on (laughs) and everyone else is up front but even though we still go up front and still enjoy that music too but we can't bring the other music to the front so it's just one of them things where emotions and feelings are attached to those original records and they just I i don't know they just can't be broken for whatever reason
0: so I wonder from the artist's perspective, when it comes to getting into the Christmas holiday genre, getting into that bag, uh, does that add depth to an artist's catalog or is it this sort of peripheral thing? So, for example, right now I'm thinking about um, uh, Dipset Christmas, what what they have done. Does that music add to their legendary status? Like, or d- Does that matter when we talk about them as a collective or... Is that all that music just over here somewhere, and just the extra, you know, that we don't pay that much attention to? I think it adds depth, hmm. uh, because somewhere
4: someone's playing it and they yep. enjoy it. You know, it's all subjective, so it's like, all right, when we get to a point of our age, we may play both and be like, hey, I'm finna play, you know, <laughs> the Temptations, and then yo, we we finna switch this up, uh-huh. <laughs> and I gotta play this record from Dipset, you know. And I think that, so I think it does definitely add depth. It just, I think Christmas music has a delayed appreciation. Mm -hmm. So it's like, all right, it may not, it may hit for a second now and we may enjoy it. And then next year we may not listen to it, but five years down the line, maybe like, Hey, we got to start adding this into the rotation or naturally add it into the rotation. Mm
0: -hmm. So I think it has
4: a delayed gratification.
0: Yeah. I just always appreciate those moments when I'm when I'm pulling into the I don't know the Christmas tree lot or or whatever just prototypical white Christmas place I'm going <laughs> and I got the loud hip hop music going but it's loud Christmas hip hop music yeah. so what you know what do, what do y'all have to say about that you know Yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah So in the same way in a similar way that uh, a lot of hip hop artists have gone you know and dipped into the Christmas bag the holiday bag many have done that on the classical side, and you know, on on our podcast, we affirm hip hop as American classical. But for the sake of this conversation, you know, when I use the word classical, I'll talk about what most people think of orchestras and 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 that sort of thing. Um, are there any legendary or well-known classical crossovers that um, serve as a, a influential, impactful part of hip hop culture? So, you know, as I, as we talked about a little bit before, I'm thinking about Nas's "I Know I Can," for example, mm-hmm. that samples Beethoven. Do people care about that track when people talk about Nas or when people talk about any of these other hip hop artists? Are there classical crossovers that they're thinking about when when they talk about these classic records, these legendary records?
5: Um, I think, I think people care about it up to a point, you know what I'm saying? Like for me, it's more interesting. Like I was telling Steve once before, like I got bored with music, hip hop in, in general and, and was wanting to challenge <laughs> this. One of the reasons why I want to become a DJ is to challenge the I guess the the nod that, hey, I don't always have to use a beat. You know what I'm saying? What if I use something else? And like kind of go back to original days of, of DJing, mm. or original days of hip hop. Um it was a song I was like as I was preparing for this podcast, it was I was like looking for songs that did that crossover. Um one I came up with was uh Ludacris, Coming to America. Oh yep. I yep. was uh like I never paid that attention until I was looking for it, you know what I'm saying. So when I heard, it, I was like, ah, okay, I see how he he kind of pushed the envelope with that one. Mm-hmm. Gucci Mane did it too, um, I think on this uh, the State versus Roderick Davis mm-hmm. album, uh, the intro, classical. Yeah, um, I think that was like Gucci, something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, just just those crossovers and stuff. I think what's gonna make it more interesting. Is you see the bigger artists like you see uh, outside of Kanye, um, you see Drake doing something like that, or or um, Travis Scott doing something like that, even though he's going through his thing right now, but yeah. he's one of the, uh, a big artist. Um, you know, you start seeing things like that from bigger artists. Yeah, people are gonna get more interested in it, of course. You know, but that's what you know if if Lil Johnny. Who just you know came off the you know th- just dropped his first song and he's he's mixing hip hop and classical music. No, it's not gonna catch unless it has everything else needed. You know, um, yeah. yeah, like lyrics. The beat has to like if you're a southern person, the beat has to be uh, bumping the trunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> uh, everything. So uh, no, I think I think some people ludicrous done it. Like I was like dog. I never paid this attention because this song is so bumping. Yeah. You know, so. And I, um,
0: and I think about some of the ways that those uh, Western classical aspects sort of catch my ear. You mentioned Drake, so and and I'm from Memphis, so, yeah. uh, you know, Knife Talk, that's my track uh, off that album. <laughs> but uh, aside from the cultural connections, I love that you have that little violin in there mm-hmm. just sort of <laughs> snuck in. And, you know, of course that grabs my attention, but, you know, Steve-O, I don't know if that is what's grabbing the attention of the... Uh, traditional, if you want to use that word, hip hop audience, you know, that might not be something that they're paying attention to in the same way. And, you know, therefore not something that artists might uh, prioritize putting into their music because they know their audience might not even hear it, much less care about it, even if they do recognize it.
4: Yeah. And, and what y'all two just said is perfect because it's exactly what's going on. I think that the classical music matters way more than a lot of people in hip hop think. Hmm. And for one, that Nas record, if you drop it in the right circumstances, everyone in the crowd is singing it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one person in hip hop who takes the classical, who uses that classical sound and does it perfectly. And it's Rick Ross. He yeah. does it on yeah. everything he does. Every Maybach music, Maybach every, music. uh, every album has some type of classical, that mafia type of sound. And Ross is. That's pretty much what Ross does, and that's kind of his just his thing, and it's it's just perfect. So I think the classical music does matter. I think exactly what y'all just said is that people don't notice what it is when they hear it. But I have been like in the car where folks are like, "Man, Ross's beats are just just amazing, it's crazy." Like what he, you know, the Charlemagne said it perfectly uh, a few days ago when I was listening to the Breakfast Club. He said that. Mm-hmm. He said that Ross is probably the you know one of the greatest artists of this time because of the beats that he select and the way that he puts his lyrics on those mm-hmm. beats. And he was like, he knows that it's probably beneath them, but he should be an a r because everything that he picks is just amazing. So I think that in hip hop, the classical, I mean, Jay-Z as well. You hear sure. it a lot within his music. I think folks just don't know what they're listening to, but they mm-hmm. hear it and it's like, man that is fire and, and people enjoy it but ross is definitely the <clears throat> i would say definitely the person who who coins it and has made it to where is is i don't want to i That's don't want to use the word yeah i don't want to use some, the wrong word of acceptable but mm-hmm. use it to where it's now it's normalized and he fused it in the hip-hop where it sounds mm-hmm. great yeah. it's just i yeah i think like yeah, i don't think people really notice what they're hearing yeah. it's
0: interesting that you bring up Rick Ross I know a lot of my audience have no idea who he is and you know <laughs> Rick, Rick Ross himself I remember him saying you know I'm no one's favorite rapper uh is is he the uh I don't know is, is that a test is is his uh reputation as no one's favorite rapper a testament steve to what you're speaking to, the way that he grabs beats and infuses these uh, classical sounds, is that why a lot of my audience has not heard of him? They know Jay-Z, you know, of mm-hmm. course, everybody knows Snoop and Nas and these yeah. people, but you have these people who within the culture, within hip hop culture, are way up here, but more broadly, they aren't as well known. I believe so. I believe mm-hmm. so.
4: And... So you have, I kind of look at it as, so you have, you know, you have your Jay-Z's, you have your Snoop's, but then also you have Nas and you have Common. Mm -hmm. And we also Mm -hmm. know, and we look at it, we know that Nas and Common isn't, even though they they are big, they do have their names, but they're not Jay and Snoop and Dre. So when when we take a look at hip hop, even though we have our T.I., our young Jeezy, there is a Rick Ross. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know why he isn't like that nickname of no one's favorite rapper is the weirdest thing, but as yet yeah. it's so true.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But he is someone's favorite rapper somewhere. It's just to the you don't get this like he's not like the first ballot Hall of Famer. If that makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah, definitely. It's like number two, it's like it's like, hey man, who's your favorite rapper? And you're like, man, Jay, Nas, Tip. Uh, you know, uh, he's in the top, Cole. Yeah, he's in the top five, but also when we first start to talk about him, it's like, man, you can't forget Ross. I've been in conversations where it's like, man, you (laughs) you can't forget Ross, and it's like, why didn't we mention Ross in the very first, you know, uh, the very beginning session? Kind of like that, you know, Hall of Fame football, you know, you got the first ballot, (laughs) you got your second ballot. It's almost as if for some reason he ends up on the second ballot, although everything he's put out has been solid, amazing. He has this incredible flow and he does fuse that that world and people take
0: notice. But for whatever reason, that's one thing I've never figured out. You're making me think about, and I'll throw this at you, Tommy, you know, one thing I'm thinking about is how there are so many more classical composers than Beethoven and Mozart. Um, but those are the the names that yeah, m- I would assume most people know you know right. and, and, but the, the despite the fact that there are so many others even black folks and even black women you know who who live yeah. in that at the same time in the same way that some of these classical artists may only know the name Jay-z they might not even know hove if I say that as as you know so yeah. the, how, how you know that there's this top tier that just goes beyond uh the the culture itself is there benefit for some of these artists, Tommy, that aren't in that top tier to sort of infuse themselves in different cultures and different genres, even classical, toward getting there because i mean i i love um shostakovich and i love william levy dawson you know these aren't rap uh, these aren't uh classical composers most folks know in the same way you know i love project pat le chat is <laughs> is in my top 10 you know and again i'm from <laughs> memphis but but that's just me these are names that you know other folks might not know so I, I just i i guess basically what i'm asking is is there a benefit is there a road to even more notoriety and fame for a hip-hop artist uh, by going into these different genres,
5: even classical. Oh, definitely. Uh, I always think of like, think of Lil Nas is it Lil Nas X or Nas X? Lil I think X. it's still Lil Nas X. Lil Nas X. Yeah. Lil Nas X. <laughs> you think of him because in his journey with with country country music. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. Him, yeah, uh, Billy Ray is it, yeah Billy Ray Cyrus. Him helping him like telling, hey, no, it was his song. Yeah. Helped him out a lot. But a lot of people that never like even hip hop people wouldn't have known who he was, you know, because it took a while for that song to catch on. But when it caught on, it caught fire. Oh, yeah. From everywhere. If anybody He's, caught one, he did. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's like, yeah, it's a benefit there because you gain fans where you usually would not gain fans, where people wouldn't usually come and, and and be like, hey, I want to go listen to his, his record because he got, you know, it's him. No, you're going to start getting those fans that want to listen to your record because they want you to do um, like Little Nas X did, like take another country music and make it fire like you did because now they're thinking, oh, you have the formula, mm-hmm. you know, even though you may have been I just got lucky, you know, but if you can emulate that that feeling one more time, you're gaining fans left and right from everywhere. And that's, honestly, man, that's what you want. You you want people to
0: hear your message. The part of that conversation we can't leave out, though, is all of the shit that he was getting on the countryside. You know, folks removing him from lists and, you know, the way the cultural differences manifested there. I would imagine that a lot of these rappers, and I hesitate. I hate to say B-list rappers because I don't want it with nobody. And... (laughs) A lot of these B-list rappers who could benefit from, you know, these cross-genre collaborations may not feel like the drama that they perceive from, say, uh, a classical audience. I mean, I, I wonder, steve how big um, of an influence you think that plays on the continued segmentation of these genres? Rappers not wanting to deal with the old lady in the fur coat and the pearls who might sneer her nose up at them.
4: Mm. Man, that's a good question. Cause <laughs> I think it's more of how do you do it without being called a sellout. Mm. So it's, they may not want to deal with the lady in the fur, fur curl the deal, they nose up, but they want to make some money yeah. or they may even have the, the uh, urge to do something different. Like say, uh, like, a um, I almost said Kishiko, not Kishiko, but and I know we're going in RB, but, uh, K. Michelle, who decided to go off and do country, she just had a feeling that she just wanted to do it. And in this world of music, I think when we have all of these genres, that places a lot of people in boxes, it's hard for them to go out and want to do different things because they're placed within. And then we're totally able to get out because of society or whatever, you know, ails them so. It's hard because not only that, you have the pushback like Lil Nas X from the actual uh, country music world itself and they right. feel like, oh, it's going to come in and take over. So it's it's a lot to it that is it, a lot of questions in there as far as, all right, how do we do it without being a sellout? And then also, how do I do it to make everybody happy? And then also there's a the point of like, hey, I'm going to do it and who cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we're going to enjoy
5: ourselves. So. I have it, one it's one of those uh, things. I have a question that come up. Like, how do you just deny a, a fire song though? Like if the song right. is good, how do you deny it? Like if it has, if it if you got a five, like you gotta hit five stars on or five categories in this one song, and it hits six, like whatever those things are, like you know, title has to be lyrics has to be, music has to be, you know, the art, the feature has to be. Um, the video has to be whatever those things are. How do you deny the song being a great song like from that backlash? You know what I'm saying? And and as an artist, that's that's what I would think the challenge would be in crossing over into any genre is I'm about to make the best. The number one country song, the number one classical song, number one hip hop song, all in one song. You yeah. know, and can't be denied in any any genre because I'm hitting everything that they're looking for. So how do you deny that?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely totally agree with that. One of the things that comes from that though, is the uh, determinations mm-hmm. of what, constitutes fire you know yeah, yeah right right <laughs> is, is, is different because i feel like in hip-hop it's about oh, okay well if it if it sold x number or if we got so many streams you know that that's yeah. the case but if uh you know on the classical side you know we will never get the streams that a drake or or a jay-z gets so I, so i think you know unpacking you know that part of the conversation uh is important as well but but i did want to sort of go into Um, You know, where hip hop is today, we can talk about hip hop uh, branching over into different genres, but it's been so much more than that. I mean, hip hop culture has touched travel. Um, real estate. I never thought I would live to see the day of black vegans, but it's all sorts of rappers and hip-hop artists who are or vegans, you know. So I wonder from your perspectives, um, where is hip-hop culture going? Not just the music, but are, are we seeing the beginning of the
5: spread? Is it going to be over soon? What are y'all's perspectives on that? It evolves. Like it, it's just going to continue to evolve because you think about how it started, it started from taking a break in, in R&B songs or, or whatever the, the 60s songs were, mm-hmm. take the break of a song. And that's the the hip hop version of that song. Right. You know, and you go from there to the DJ being the, name, the main artist to, you know, having a wordsmith or, or somebody just to rap over the beat while the DJ is doing his thing. And now... Right. DJs aren't even included in songs. Right. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, I've been watching, listening I'm listen to Will's book and been watching the Fresh Prince. They don't work in today's uh, society together. Right. You know what right. I'm saying? Um, it's just like, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff would just be there. But it evolves, man. It's going to continue to evolve because hip hop is the, it's the number one music genre, I would think. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything has to run through hip-hop first.
0: Yeah, yeah. Steve-O, what what do you think as far as the evolutions of hip-hop, even beyond branching over into other genres uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of I mean even podcasting you know what mm-hmm. the first time I was listening to podcasts it was this these nerdy little things that white boys in their garage did and now hip-hop podcasts are yeah. at the top of, of it all so again just yeah. the evolution of how this culture uh, folks know the music but how the culture itself branches off into things and how that what's that gonna look like in the future at least from your perspective if you look
4: at where hip-hop is today versus where it was before the growth and and how it survives, like pretty much every single decade of being pushed back or held down I think it will continue to grow and evolve if you look at and and the thing about hip-hop is the most important part is it's a lifestyle more than rap is the music form right but hip-hop itself is, is has evolved into fashion into uh speaking how you speak to people um like you said, podcasting and movies and, and all of that. And I think it will continue to grow. I think a couple of years ago, they named hip hop as like the number one genre in the world uh, yeah, at course. a certain point. So I think it will continue to evolve. And even if you look at streaming back in the well, uh, some years ago, yeah, back in the day, might as well say. When we listened to our mixtapes, we had to go and listen to them on websites like uh, Live Mixtapes, That Piff, stuff like that. And if you look at that then, I mean, if you look at it now as to what it was then, that was streaming. It was streaming the whole time. And now we're like, at the point now where streaming is the main thing, we don't see any records within the store. So I think that hip hop will inadvertently, in a way, continue to push the world of music forward whether it's, uh, in any different type of form. I mean, I wait, I can't wait to see how the verses, the whole verses battle yeah. stuff goes over into, you know, say a classical versus type of deal. <laughs> or I have ideas. I like have that. ideas.
3: <laughs> exactly. So
4: I think the evolution of it all will continue to push forward because it, it comes from, um, you know, where hip hop comes from. If I may say it, it, it comes from, uh, the hood, the ghetto, uh, you know, a lot of, of unfortunate individuals who make a way out of nothing and, and put something together that becomes, dare I say, fly. And next thing you know, it's picked up by the young white kid in the Suburbans and then yeah. is off and it's gone. And it's yeah. next thing you know, the entire world is on tour. So I, I see hip hop continuing to get bigger and bigger and move forward and move forward just based
0: off our creativity. Yeah, and and you're touching on something that I really lean into when it comes to why I've dedicated my life to not only classical music, but decolonizing it and showing folks the blackness that is classical music, certainly here in the United States, that creating something out of nothing, that that struggle that uh, manifests into something so much greater. I feel like if those stories can be matched with hip-hop can be matched with the folks still doing jazz It's some black folks out here in the country realm and and for real, not like Lil Nas X, but dead ass country. (laughs) You know, I feel like if all those stories can be put together, our power um, as a black people would be so much richer. I I wonder um, how y'all contextualize the importance of hip-hop culture beyond music, beyond this being um, uh, a, a, a come up, a, a way to find a bag, you know, all of those things. How do you contextualize the importance of hip hop to folks who don't have that cultural connection to it?
5: That will make me think a little bit. Um, <laughs> let's see. Man, honestly, man, it's, it's, it's like you know how people say that I want to lead by example. Mm-hmm. If you look at me, you see my family or or something like that. Most of the time, it's like when you look at a person, you see hip hop in them. Um, a lot of people like you hear about people being afraid of of certain people. You hear about people just being curious of certain people. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times that's just hip hop. That's a realness that hip hop brings and, and that's what draws people to it. Like I think about my, my daughter. She's going to grow up listening to Hip hop, you know, she's gonna grow up inside of that culture because it's how I live. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's when she goes see Uncle Steve, it's how he lives. You know, so it's 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 like that's how you know it's gonna it's like a magnet. You know what I'm saying? When when somebody's just walking down the street and it's being more welcome in corporate America, and the fact that that's happening because. Uh, what what was a few years ago? It was like they had this thing about hair. Yep, hair is the culture. Hair is hip hop. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Uh, with with dreads and and you know, ladies wearing their froze out and stuff like that. So it's it's just an expression, and um, it's like a magnet. People are are kind of like amazed by the culture. You yep. know. And naturally, you're going to be curious about it. So you're going to start asking questions. The important part is for the person to be willing to answer those questions. Yeah. And not just say, hey, go look it up or you're bothering me or something like that. But be willing to have those conversations. Just how we're sitting here. Like, I don't listen to classical music at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm always interested to hear new music. I'm always interested to how do i get this guitar sound into a rap song that's right. that's fire or how do i get this this what's a what's a instrument a violin into this into this song and it's fire you know that's what i'm looking for but i'll never like go and and try to learn how to play the violin so i can get that sound but i will have a conversation with you about it
3: mm-hmm. and say
5: hey what is this sound like you know what do you think this is missing or how does this sound in your world? You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Yeah. I think I mean, it's just well, like, wait, like, like,
0: like when future uh, came out with mask off, whenever that was, everybody yeah. was yeah, playing right. flute all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, absolutely. Um, so when it comes to affirming Steve, when it comes to affirming uh, the importance and the nature uh, of hip hop and how it connects to the past and to the future, I wonder where you would start someone off. I definitely have black composers that I would start people off with who want to learn more about classical music. Is somebody listening to this right now who don't know nothing about hip hop? Who do they need to look up on their streaming service? Well, what what is the music they need to start with? That's a tough one. (laughs) And I know that's one of the deep hip hop, you know, debates, because I've heard a lot of people say you got to start with Wu-Tang. Of course, you have Mm -hmm. folks that say, oh, no, you got to go back to Eric B and Rakim. Um, My start, you know, my earliest hip hop memories is uh, listening to Queen Latifah. So that's where I point a lot of people to. But so I I understand there's no one right answer, but just for in your opinion, at least, where would you send someone to? So... That is definitely the great debate
4: of how do you start <laughs> off? And, and for me, I have to start off. I would want you to start off with something more current.
5: Yeah.
4: And I will yeah. start you and then I would kind of say, all right, what have you heard? Or mm-hmm. uh, What is your perception? It is. It more starts off as a discussion to figure out, all right, where can I fit them? So I would want to start you off with something more of like, all right, This may be more commercial, but check this out first. And then I will say, all right, after that, what do you think about that? Now, let's start to backtrack you through the history Mm.
3: because I
4: want you to catch. I want you to catch the. The uh, popularity part first so that you're like, okay, this is cool. I like this. I can move to this. And then I want to take you down the deeper road because I don't want to put you into the deep end too soon.
2: Yeah. Be like,
4: hey, you gotta listen to Wu Tang, you know, uh thir- 36 chambers, and then I'm gonna put you on outcast <laughs> and uh we're gonna do AT aliens, and then I'm gonna bring you over here to Goody Moga Goody Mob, right. Outcast, and the whole thing. That's the dungeon family. And then you would be like, look, I'm just gonna go back to my classical music because that's <laughs> <just> too much. <laughs> so I want you to gravitate to a natural I'm like, all right, let's, you know, what some of these hits here, what do you think about this one? And you might be like, yeah, I like that. Say uh let's say say Drake, you know, we'll yeah. we'll start you off with Drake. I'll start you off with uh the not knife talk, but I'll start you <laughs> off with uh too sexy and be like, What you think sure. about this Sure. And if that catches them be like, Yeah, I like that record. And matter of fact, it's it's uh you know more for because way too sexy. I mean, everybody's heard that from growing up, unless you're right a lot younger than at that point, yeah. it's just like, all right, yeah, I like this. And then I'll be like, hey, so this is a sample from this song. And it was like, OK, if you like that, let's kind of backtrack you down the road, you know, memory road to get you to say a right. LL Cool J or right. Run DMC or we get you to. I mean, I even take you over to House of Pain and let you listen okay. to some of that Cypress Hill Ice Cube and then start you bring you up through there. And then I'll be like, all right. Now let's go to Jay Z. Let's go to Outkast. So I, I would want to start you off with more of something that you're gonna hear con- consistently, and then you know on a on a more popularity basis, and then kind of take you down memory lane mm-hmm. to speed you up, so that you then can check out a Run the Jewels or sure, you know all of that. So that's how I would do it,
5: just to break someone in. I mean, that that's has like that's never usually how it goes anyway. Yeah, you it's kind of the you, way it is. You, like. Take me and Max O'Cream, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they put me on Max O'Cream. I started listening to, to the, his first this last album he came out. Then I started listening to all his old stuff. So yeah, it's a that's the way you should do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I have I have one more thing I want
0: to jump into, but uh before we do that, how can uh folks learn more about speaker geekers? Where can they hear it and, and all of that, all of that stuff?
5: Steve, you want me to get this? Yeah, because he <laughs> ends the
4: speaker geeker podcast, yeah. so he ends <laughs> do
5: it. Um, <laughs> man, honestly, man, we're we're everywhere now. Um, at Speaker Geekers Podcast um, on Instagram and on Facebook, um, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can catch us. Just Speaker Geekers Podcast. Get um, yeah, on YouTube, Three Out Media Studios. Uh, we have some of the shows up on there. Um, Then you can just Google us, honestly. Yeah, yeah. right up. Google me, Google (laughs) y'all everywhere, y'all
4: outside.
0: (laughs) All right, well, this podcast is called Triloquy, so I have to, you know, throw something at y'all that I feel like a lot of people might see as, you know, that as as trill. In classical music, on the classical side, we're talking a lot about uh deframing the genre as something white you know this isn't just for white folks and we go into history and make the case that black folks have been doing it xy and z and all of that on the same hand you know or maybe on the other hand there is something about how white institutions platform black folks and black art within classical music for the sake of their institution so you know for example i don't know if y'all are aware but uh, the metropolitan opera this year for the first time in hundred and something years staged an opera by a black man you know so as historic of a moment as that was i flew to new york to go see the thing at the end of the day i'm giving my money to these white institutions. Okay. So to that, and, you know, to loop back around to marrying the ideas of classical and hip hop even more from your perspectives, what would you need to see to give your dollars to something classical? Let's say, um, uh, uh I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, Uh, a a show that I know would hit. So let's just say uh, Hove is performing with the New York Philharmonic. Okay. It's Mm going to be some black folks there, but they're giving that money to the white institution of the New York Philharmonic. Is the answer to get more black institutions that are classical doing this work, or is it important for those white institutions to bring in the the black art and the black artistry. I think there's a, a you know, there are pros and cons on both sides, but mm-hmm. I always get stuck on the fact of who am I giving my time and my money to? So how can we, with that part of the conversation considered, work toward marrying these two cultures and, and these two genres towards something greater?
4: Whew. So without <laughs> getting too deep. <laughs> so in, in Nashville, we have the, um, um, uh, Oh man, I just drew a blank. It's not the Grand Ole Opry. It's it's a building that they do a lot of symphonies in, and mm-hmm. what they have done is they have had Nas there to do right, uh, to do his album, but also do it with the with the symphony.
3: Mm-hmm. So
4: for me, and it's in Nashville. <laughs> That's another thing, yeah, like, right? Nashville, of course, and it always sells out. So I know I don't really know who's totally behind it but for me i think we need to have more of that to happen because then you'll bring you know that crowd there now when we talk about the the topic of when we go a little further and talk about the topic of okay who we're giving our money to then that becomes pretty tricky because as being a black man yes i want to support the black events you know Mm -hmm. No questions asked. I want to give my money. If TSU, which is a a, a, a black college, yep. African-American college, HBCU, does it, then I'll be first in line. Uh, Fisk, another one, yep. first in line. I would definitely want them to do. I would want some of these. The I would want that Nas event like that to take place at those historical black colleges so that we can bring together both. You know, because you may have people that aren't comfortable with going to that particular uh, venue because they may feel uncomfortable. So Mm -hmm. I think we need to bring. They need to just come down to what we're at, (laughs)
3: basically.
4: Yeah. Like, yes, let's have it here. And and, and the other thing is, I want them to, to promote it. So if, for example, if Nas comes and is doing his album without the symphony, and you promote it like everywhere on every station that you know we would hear it at. Then if the symphony comes to that school, promote that the same way. Cause I want to yeah. go to these things, but I don't know they're going on. Yeah. And I think that's really the breakdown there of like, okay, like this was going on. And it's like, yeah, we would come, but we didn't know it was going on. Like, promote it the same. Let's not think that I wouldn't want to be there. I might want to be there. Put it on the stage of your whole it's you know come to these historical black colleges come to where we're at so that we can you know open that door that forbidden door and so that we're like yeah i, I do want to hear this because we have bands i mean we go see bad other bands all the time and they're right. playing these pieces <laughs> you yeah. know and the thing is we might not know what they are but we enjoy them you know so yeah. come to where we are let us have a chance to spend our money with you because You know, you have these uh, promoters of other cultures, white promoters, I might as well say that will and they know they're going to get their money's worth. So take a chance, you know, put it up there. Let us have a chance to spend money with you, because other than that, we're forced to go to them and
0: pay our money, even though we we don't want to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll wrap with this, Tommy. I'll, I'll ask you to everything that Steve-O was just talking about. Is there
5: something in it for Black folks to go to those spaces? Um. Yeah. I always think it is. It's it's when that happens, we're gonna see a big change in hip hop and how it sounds. Um. Because it's not anything. Only it's only a a plus when yeah. that happens. Um. The biggest thing between that happening is kids will learn more as far as like music because a lot of people oh, I'm going to grow up and be a rapper and don't know what you know a, a snare drum is mm-hmm. or a bass drum or or 808 you know they're just I got lyrics you know but it's it's more to music than just rhyming you know over a beat and i think that's what helps move the evolution of hip-hop along. It's, you're able to bring more things in. You take Zaytoven, for example. Zaytoven has some of the most fire beats, Yeah. all because he's (laughs) able to add so many different things into his beats. Mm -hmm. Now imagine if a hundred kids are growing up doing what Zaytoven is doing, and then by the time they get 20 years old, They've been playing instruments since they were six. They've mastered instruments. Now let's put them together to what I like to listen to. Man, we're going to have something amazing. So that's the benefit of this happening.
0: Sing it with me. The greatest, the greatest, Jesus is the greatest, the greatest, Jesus is the greatest, yeah. Dietrich Hatton there on a track produced by Zaytoven, Greatest Gift. I wanted to bring in some Zaytoven because Tommy brought him up. I appreciate that being seen as an example on the hip hop side of how some of the producers are really foregrounding uh, these instruments and some of the so-called classical sounds into what they're doing and even how that uh, intersects with the holiday seasons again. Like I said, I don't celebrate Christmas for nothing about Jesus, but I can I can appreciate the music and all of that. Where sort of
1: would stuff. one go to find something? Like How would you even know where to go
0: to find Zaytoven? And you're you're getting into the question that I want to ask you. So for so many folks in hip hop, especially down in Atlanta, you know, just being. Engaged by the community, Zethoven is a name you're going to know in mm. the same way that we know the name Papiel French here because mm. we're engaged okay. with the community. Yeah. I think it's something similar. But you know, you're bringing up a good point. One of the last things I was talking with the guys about is marketing. You know, one of the complaints was that even if the orchestra does feature the music of Nas or Drake or someone. They don't know about it. These institutions, arts institutions don't know how to even market to these communities. So, you know, I I wanted to bring that to you. Let's say next weekend on your radio show, you had an hour of hip hop adjacent classical music for some reason. You know, let's let's just pretend that that's a thing that's happening. What would be your ideas on how to make sure I'm tuned in? folks who would really be engaged by those aesthetics and the stories you have to tell, how would you make sure that these different communities have a chance of knowing that it's happening?
1: If it's next week, we're, we're too late. We we don't, we don't have time. Three months, three months from now. Sure. So um, like I said earlier, one of the questions I'm always asking at work is what are we doing Mm -hmm. to reach out um, just so that I can see if there's any movement in their answers sure um, and you can say okay we're going to get a marketing budget and we're going to do a blitz of uh print in certain neighborhoods or certain uh places you know sides of buses or whatever um i think all of that is great but i'm really curious about what might happen if you can get for the lack of a better word half a dozen or so emissaries what if you had ambassadors what if you had people who were advocating for the show among the people that you were trying to reach with it casual conversation like Mm. right what if you had people that were just um talking about this thing coming up to the people who would be interested in it because that's really focused that's a really focused way to get grassroots interest in something that you're doing because print is like using a shotgun you know it's going yeah. to scatter and you don't know how accurate it's going to be yeah so uh i wonder what what could be done to get uh an ambassador going around in the communities that you're trying to reach and telling people flat out hey have you have you tuned into this hour of programming or yeah. this specialty show or this Cla-
0: classical jams with scott blankenship <laughs> be
1: um blanks place we're, or skunk mouth
0: we're, we're gonna get Enter the fourth movement here in a second, but see you—you've inspired another question out of me. So, going I'm back to the quit. Jason Isbell story, they were speaking to uh, fix, you know, correcting past wrongs and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. We have a generation, probably multiple generations, of Black folks who don't see their classical institutions, even their classical radio stations, as safe spaces, considering things that may have been in the news or or sure. whatever. So, how? can that be how can we get these ambassadors uh well I, I guess really the question is do you think addressing past things is a part of getting the trust of individuals who can become ambassadors who can help with marketing and
1: those sure. things well I, th- I also think that an apology needs to be in there somewhere and a, an acknowledgement of it along with uh uh, this path forward. Uh, in fact, that article that um, we talked about with Jason Isbell features that very thing. You can you can acknowledge your your privilege and not feel you know depressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, just work with it. Yeah. You know? and, and acceptance is a part of that. I think.
0: Yeah, and and really, um, it's it's not even. It, it, sometimes it's just only about the acknowledgement because you know. I'll, I'll leave it there I'll leave it at that right but it's not about getting something material is what I mean it's not about getting money or getting um, hired or hired back or anything
1: right but you know just the acknowledgement sure and um, oh, I lost the other thing that I was going to talk about oh yeah um, it, it's going to be hard at first you know the, the these first months and years mm-hmm. coming back up out of this are going to be the most difficult but a few opuses ago we were talking about trust and Trust has to be extended in order to be received as mm-hmm. well. So uh, I'm extending an awful lot of trust in a, an awful lot of different people, and and I'm hoping that I will earn that from other people, yes. th- from the from people of color.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, did I answer your question or yes, did I sidestep it? Yes, amen. Amen. Happy holidays. Um, we're gonna <laughs> get into this fourth movement. I'm gonna talk just a couple minutes, not long, about a clarinetta. So we're gonna trill into the final movement with a little clarinet music i haven't given any room to hanukkah this holiday season here on Triloquy. And uh, by the time this drops, I believe Hanukkah, the celebration of lights, will be over officially. But I did want to um, leave some room and offer some Hanukkah-themed music, so I was clicking through some things today. And uh, I found this tune, several recordings of a tune by Adam Sugar uh, called The Hanukkah Overture. a piece of music for string orchestra and clarinet. Uh, we're going to listen to uh, today, a rendition of it, as brought to us by the uh, New Generation Orchestra with soloist Mark Simon. So let's listen to a little bit of this as we trail our way into this final movement. In my next life, or maybe when I carve out some free time and, and, you know, have time to pick up even another instrument, Klezmer-style clarinet playing is really something else. I I love it. In in that recording, I don't don't know if you could hear it, but there's even like the growl technique where you're playing and kind of singing through it. You know, you have that, of course, the note and pitch bending. So... That's so, virtuosic. So incredible. It, it's, it's the shit. I love it. I live for it. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrated Hanukkah this year. I hope uh, y'all can offer some more um, klezmer style or or music from uh, cultural uh, Jewish cultural traditions because that's a rabbit hole. That's that's a deep body of work that I'm not all that familiar with and appreciate every time I get to revisit it. Anyway, love it. we're here in the uh, fourth movement, the final movement, the triloquy movement where I say some things that everybody don't say on their programs and on their different things so (laughs) Um, and this is going to be a short one because i want to i want to get into some uh you know keep the positive holiday spirit going but with that being said since we recorded last the former principal clarinetist of the nashville symphony went on what I saw as a campaign spreading a video that he produced. He commented, uh, it got sent directly to me. He commented under um, one of the YouTube Triloquy videos just to make sure I saw it and to make sure people saw it. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds of this, but long story short, for folks who are unfamiliar, um, Titus Underwood, uh, first black principal oboist of a major symphony orchestra in the, uh, in the country, member of the Triloquy family, when he got his job, with the Nashville Symphony, he was going through some stuff with a person who then was unnamed. And the reason I want to start at the beginning, because this actually directly ties with Triloquy. In 20, I want to say it was, you went to, you were at Sphinx with me in in 2020. Yep. February 20. Okay. So we interviewed Titus during our time there. And he had to pull the interview. He asked me not to publish it because there was a lot of news surrounding him. He had restraining orders out, you know, and that was a little stressful for me because, you know, as, as an executive producer of a weekly show, I have to scramble and figure out the next thing and all that. Um, and, you know, he he was keeping everything very close to the chest, close to the vest. Um, you remember this, I do. right? You were there. Yep. All right. Fast forward, we're learning now that he was dealing with some violence, um, some racially charged violence with one of his former colleagues at the Nashville Symphony. That musician has since been dismissed and lost a couple other, you know, uh, gigs. I'm not going to post or share this video any uh, on, on this platform. If you happen to see it and come across it, um, fine. But basically, I want to bring this up because we have a lot of stories about people who were wronged and and what had to happen and um you know how they pick themselves up from losing a job or getting dismissed from something for one reason or another i'm i'm one of those people when i see a video like this and i especially look at the comments under it i feel so sorry for people who feel like they have to dig in their heels after being corrected or having uh faced the consequences of not evolving with the rest of the world when it comes to conversations and sensibilities and accommodations at the intersections of contemporary culture, race, and classical music. I did share the video with you. More than I want your opinions on the video, what are your opinions on public response to um, losing a gig or having to deal with something that was Uh, very public. We sort of talked about it with Chris Cuomo, the way that he dealt with his getting fired and all that sort of thing. Do you think this guy is doing the right thing by spreading his alleged side of the story and why wokeness is killing classical music? Is Mm -hmm. this the way to go? Is
1: this helping anything? Um, Let let me say that I had to go back and read those articles again Mm -hmm. because I realized that I got them exactly wrong. Hmm. I got them exactly backward. I thought that I thought that the maestro for some reason I had it in my mind that he was advocating for Titus. Mm-hmm. And it, uh this video makes it sound like it was the other way around. So basically what I'm saying is I had to go back and look at all of this stuff again and I still don't fully understand it. And so from that perspective, the video isn't a good look. Mm-hmm. The video is it, it looks like it's punching down even though sure. there is no Titus is not under him. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that, but, but, you know, the sentiment that I'm saying is, um, it, it it looked, it, it looks bullying. It looks, um, it's not a good look. I know. I just,
0: I, I, I felt sorry. And I I think there, uh, as, as I've mentioned with a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of artists that I feel like I have to defend I feel like there is room for redemption but for there to be redemption one has to understand the wrongdoing one has to understand the issue and I don't think this musician yet understands the issue with saying the N-word to someone like Titus you don't do or, heads
1: up you don't do that or like
0: the, the many other micro or macro aggressions that Titus spoke to so, um, or,
1: or his vocabulary okay so you know, there are words out there that you are not going Going to know right and it's your job to get familiar with them if i were uninitiated into this situation and saw that video cold mm-hmm. i would have thought boy this guy's Got a thorn stuck somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, and this may be a little bit of
0: inside baseball for most folks. Again, I'm yeah. not gonna. I'm not gonna. Spread I do not the, know this man. I'm not gonna spread the video. I'm I'm not gonna do any of that. If you happen to uh, find this uh, piece of media, I hope that you will send some loving, warm energy to Titus because I'm sure it must be very challenging for him to continue to have to. Uh, deal with a racist musician who he doesn't even work with anymore, but still has to deal with all of his nonsense uh, narratives and, and those sorts of things. Um, what were the comments like? Where's my where's my button? The there? cricket. The, the comments were like that. Oh, <laughs> the com- comments were very problematic. Anyway. Merry Christmas, Uh, (laughs) y'all. Happy Kwanzaa. We'll talk about Kwanzaa a little bit uh, next week again. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrated. And let's spread love. It's a lot of folks trying to spread negativity, spread hate. Let's do something else, at least for this holiday season. Again, loving energy to uh, Titus Underwood, loving energy to each and every one of you. Thank you, I'm very, very, very grateful for each and every one of you for uh, continuing to listen to us run our mouths, even for over two hours as it will be by the time we get done with this. So let's go ahead and get out of here. Thank y'all, see you soon.